Welcome to another edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Reverend Willem J. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Barber II, he's an American Protestant minister who has spent every effort to ensure that poor and working class Americans realize they are already empowered to create fear, a fear and a just society. He's the president of Repairers of the Breach, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and the architect of Moral Mondays. He is what America needs right now. Reverend Barber, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, and thank you so much. I love the title of your show, Politics Done Right, because, you know, politics is something you have to do. It's not a passive endeavor, and we have to seek to do the right thing. And for me as a minister, right and righteousness, justice and love all go together, uh, in particular on how we treat the least of these. So let me thank you for uh, this uh, invitation and for all that you do through this show. Well, look, uh, it is my pleasure, Dr. Uh, Barber. Let me tell you, I, I, I met you in D.C. a few years ago when you marched from uh, that whole march from the south right up into D.C. I don't recall what the name of it is right now, but it was a huge march with people walking straight up. Do you remember that? Yeah, the mass mall that was called the Poor People's Low Wage Workers Mass Mall March on Washington. Uh, People's Assembly and to the polls. And actually, the reports were that there were tens of thousands of people from all over the country, um, uh, some 40 denominational groups, some 300 other organizations, and uh, 2.5 million people tuned in online because, you know, we're still doing some of the ending parts of COVID. Work COVID is still here, but it was, we had to be very careful. We had intended that gathering to be in 2020, and we held, we did online until 2022. And uh, out of that, we launched a massive campaign to mobilize um, poor and low-wage voters in um, 12 states, touched about 2.6 million poor and low-wage voters, and the metrics came back to show that those voters had major impact. Uh, on, um, on on political progressive victories, uh, you know, throughout the country. And I think if you remember on that day, the first hundred minutes were all people impacted speaking. It wasn't people speaking for people, which is our model in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Reverend Liz Steele Harris is a coach, and I constantly emphasize that the greatest, most powerful moral voices are the impact that people themselves who live every day in this country who face the injustices but still believe that transformation is possible. That is so powerful. You know, uh, Dr. Um, Barbara, as I was doing some research on, on um, you know, what we we're going to talk about, because I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in those who are getting the people that have been left out of our economy to actually participate. They have a voice. And I came across something that you wrote right after, I think, the Supreme Court got rid of 
any practical version of the affirmative action. It was called, and you wrote it at Yale, it was called A Moral Declaration of America on our shared task of building the nation that's never yet been. That title said it all. The first paragraph you have, uh, uh, you said, One miraculous day, all Americans may rise to the moral mandate of obeying the unforceable natural law that all humans are created equal and that we each have the right to enjoy the earth. But until then, all we have is this American democracy to protect people against oppression, domination, and man-made evil systems that value riches over lives are our laws, laws derived from our constitution. That, I mean, it's a very long document, but the preamble says it all. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Well, every now and then, we need to go back, as Martin King said, to what we've said on paper and what our democracy is built on. And as Langston Hughes said, America has never been America to me, but I swear this oath that America shall be. And one of the reasons we say that is because there's certain things that we said. Now, when they were written, they didn't, they didn't apply it to everybody, but we must demand that they be applied today. For instance, it is in our Declaration of Independence that we said that everybody have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have to ask the question, what does that mean in that moment, this moment? What is hindering life? So if poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in the most opulent country, wealthiest country in the world, then that is a violation of our Declaration. Right. We, we, we didn't just want independence. We declared a certain kind of independence that it would be for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We go to our Constitution and we say that the whole purpose of government, the establishment of government, is to establish justice. Well, what does that mean? What is established justice in this century? What does it mean not just to pray for justice? believe in justice, but to literally establish it, to, to make it firm. And so when you look around and you see, for instance, that a congressperson can get elected to office and they get free health care just because they got elected. But then that same congressperson can block Americans from getting health care. That's not established justice. That's established injustice. Uh, when we re when we look at the fact that, um, that we have less voting rights today uh, than we had August 6, 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in Section 5 pre-clearance that said states couldn't just operate on their own. They had to have their, their laws pre-cleared to make sure they weren't per perpetuating racism. To, to gut the Voting Rights Act, to throw it into the Congress and tell the Congress to fix it, and Democrats nor Republicans have fixed that Voting Rights Act for now 10, uh, 11 years. That's not established justice. That's established injustice. And if you look at each principle, those principles should be laid like a grid on top of our current reality. We say that the goal of our country is to provide for the common defense. Well, we didn't defend essential workers during COVID. We told them they were essential, but then we treated them like they were expendable. We didn't ensure that when they went to work, they had paid family, they had insurance, they had health insurance, they had living wages. We say in our preamble, in our constitution, we are to promote the general welfare. 
that is. And, and by the way, welfare is a constitutional word. We've actually chicken that word from our public discussion as though welfare is some evil word, but it's mm-hmm. in the Constitution. And it says everybody's welfare. We have 87 million people are uninsured or underinsured. If 58 senators can do what they did in 2020 and block 52 million people who make less than a living wage of $50 an hour from receiving that minimum wage. Literally 58 senators said no to 52 million people while they themselves have gotten all kinds of raises. When we've not raised the minimum wage since 2009, that's 15 years. It's at 725. There's not a state in this country where poor and uh, somebody making uh, 725 can afford a basic two-bedroom apartment. We're not promoting the general welfare. And then lastly, in that article, I wanted to point out in, in long form that we also say that we believe that establishing justice, is, uh, uh, providing for the common defense, and promoting the general welfare are essential to domestic tranquility. In other words, you, you, we cannot have peace. People can't say, well, let's have peace in the nation. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Well, peace must grow out of established justice. It must grow out of a provided general welfare. It must grow out of a a providing for the common defense. It's not just peace in words. It must be peace in practice, and that peace must be connected to justice. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, and and we know that a lot of the problems that we have today, we're, we're, uh, it's sort of built on the divide and conquer uh, tenet. In other words, uh, we know most Americans want the same thing, but the only way you can get them to keep their eyes off the ball is to have them believe there are differences that really don't exist among them. Is that right? It's, I call them micro divisions and deflections. And, and what we need to understand is this is not a Trump creation or a recent mm-hmm. creation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can track it all the way down to the American reality. But let me let me track it from one place in 1965-66. And there's a powerful book that all of your audience ought to read called A Time of Illusion where an author actually goes in and investigates and unpacks the goal of the so-called Southern strategy. It was, uh, it was right in the height of the, the peace movement. It was in the height of the women's movement and in the height of the civil rights movement and the youth movement that, that these Southern Dixiecrats got together. And they actually, it was uh, not long after uh, Nick, Richard Nixon was going to run for president. And they said to him, we know how to win. And this is how we have to win. We must engage in intentional, positive polarization. We must make sure that these various groups split, that they see each other as adversaries. We must use the 
the anger against the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the, 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 the peace movement, and turn people against each other. It's, and they said, and we must start in the South and Southwest from Maryland all the way over to Nevada. And out of that, we can create, they said, a new rising. We must paint the Democratic Party as the, quote, black party, the giveaway party. And we must make sure that the hope that many had of masses of Negro people and poor, low-wage white people coming together and forming a political power block does not happen. Then they said, if we get caught, we'll lie. And they said, and it's probably going to get out of control and we'll lie and say we didn't do it. But if we engage in this positive polarization, not only can we split the South, we can split the ethnic enclaves of the North. And then we play our game in that division. This was actually a plan, right? So, 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 and if you don't know this, then you think that Trump is somehow just, just came on the scene or the MAGA Republicans came on the scene. And by the way, this, the entire, almost entire uh, uh, Republican Party bought into this and everyone has used it. Nixon used it. Reagan used it. Bush, Bush one and two used it. They've all used it. And too often, moderate Democrats have used it as well and succumbed to it. You remember a minute ago I said that 52 senators, I said the eight senators voted mm-hmm. against 52 million Americans. Eight of those were so-called moderate Democrats. Right. You think right. about that now. Right. It's 40, 50 were Republicans. And 50. So this divide and conquer that you just mentioned is a strategy. I love it the way I love it the way that um, a scholar out of Emory says. She says what we are seeing today is an iconography of a too often American reality. Wow. We cannot act as though what we are seeing is is like nuance. It's like it's it's something that's brand new. It's just one person. If we if we if we do our analysis that way, we are missing the entire exactly. function of what's going on. Right. Exactly. You nailed it. Let me let me ask you something, uh, Reverend Barber, because uh, first of all, I want to qualify something that you said when you mentioned about they they attempted to turn the Democratic Party into having many Americans believe it's the black party and above and beyond that, that somehow it's the welfare party. And interestingly, a lot of the supporters of uh, the right or let's say in the in the the entire Appalachian trails, uh, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, all these places that fall within the Appalachian trails, where uh, the a, a large percentage of the white people in there have a much higher percentage of welfare usage. In fact, there's a video that I uh, was uh, work is suggesting that people looked at said 50% of certain areas in West Virginia, the people are on government support. Not that it's a good thing, but the, the, the idea is it's amazing how much they vote against their interests. A lot of what you are doing, I noticed uh, for some time now, is bringing all these people together to make them realize, no, we are all in the same boat and we're being played. Go ahead, doctor. 
Well, I spent a lot of time in Appalachia, just like we do in the South. My grandfather was from West Virginia. He was a coal miner that worked along other white coal miners in the 1920s in what was called the Blair Mountain Wars, when the when the miners stood up against the bosses and the government, and they had Molotov cocktails dropped on them from biplanes. So there is this history of fusion movement, uh, even in Appalachia. You know, the song that the Black Lives Matter movement sang a lot, Which Side Are You On? Which Side Are You On? actually came from Appalachia, came from East Kentucky. A, a white woman there was singing that song and they were trying to arrest her husband, who was a miner who took on the bosses. Um, he, let me let me do a little bit of a reframe frame on what was just said. And mm-hmm. at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March, Dr. King stood on the steps of that Alabama State House and said, the greatest fear of the racist aristocracy in this country is for the masses of Negro people and the masses of poor, poor white people to come together oh, yeah. and form a voting bloc that could fundamentally shift the economic architecture. He actually said that. I think that's one of the reasons, you know, he eventually was killed because three years later he was gone because he was putting this together, right? Now, here we are today. Let me make a couple of corrections that that are often repeated, but they're not true today. One is uh, that welfare, actually, as we know it, is a good thing, um, even what grew out of the New Deal and others, because without it, you know, the, we, we had 140 million poor and low-wealth people uh, without assistance in 2019. Without assistance, it would be much worse, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason why we have to have the assistance is because the systems don't do the things that need to be done for people right. to exist, like making sure people have a living wage and have health care. But however, let me go, let me take one other step. Did you know that the fact of the matter is most poor and low-wage white people do not vote against their own self-interest? The, 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 when, we, when, when the insurrection happened, immediately some people started saying, oh, that's just a bunch of poor, you know, uneducated white people. But when they did the analysis who made up that crowd, it was mostly middle and upper class white folk and, 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 and extremists. Because the truth of the matter is we did an analysis study called Waking the Sleeping Giant. And this is what we found with the scholars doing the research. Most poor and low-wage folk don't vote. Period. They don't vote. I and get the it. One reason uh, they don't vote mm. is because, you see what I'm saying? The, the, and yes. the one reason they don't vote is because nobody talks to them. They, the last time I was in Harlan County, Kentucky, which is where Lyndon Baines Johnson launched the, the war on poverty, it's East Kentucky. We went there and spent two or three days in the campaign. They told me a presidential candidate had not been back there since then. Nobody talks to them. Reverend so Barber. Back there don't vote. Reverend Barber, you just opened my eyes to something that I have to add to my narrative and stop. I mean, you're first of all, I, I'd never thought about it that way. Actually, most right. don't vote against your interests. So it's a wow. That is that is insightful. Right. Please continue. But I mean, I, I, it just kind of rung a bell when you expressed it that way. Go ahead, my friend. Right. right. Well, I'm actually I've written a book called White Poverty. 
the lies mm-hmm. and, and, and myths that have told, been told that continue to exacerbate division uh, between the races is coming out in, in, in June. And it's okay. for this very purpose. I take a sympathetic look at poor, lower white wage white people as an African-American. Uh, you know, I have mixed root, but I'm an African-American. And, and it was startling what I found. I found out that not only have we lied, we told damn lies about what's really going on. And, 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 and it's used to keep that coalition. If I mm-hmm. see if you can teach people that white people are voting against their own self-interest, then black people say, well, we, we blame everything on poor white folk. Then you, then you teach poor white folk that black folk are somehow taking things from them and you create the division. But the metrics, the numbers show us that most poor, low-wage white people, most poor, low-wage people, period, don't vote against their own interests. They don't vote. And the number one reason they don't vote is nobody talks to them. Now, where does that leave us? There are 87 million poor and low-wage eligible voters in this country today. 87 million. Uh, some, some eligible some uh, registered who actually registered of those registered, some 30 million voted and some 20, uh, uh, excuse me, some 50, 40 million voted, some 20 plus million did not vote. So, so, so people vote, but they're not voting their power. Secondly, what we now know is that there's not a state in this country where poor and low wealth folk make up less than 30% of the electorate. Wow. In so-called battleground states, in so-called battleground states, it's over 40% where the margin of victory was within 3% in a presidential race. Now, lastly, we also now know through our study that there's not a so-called battleground state where if 20% of poor and low-wage voters who have not voted were to vote, they could not control the election and, and close any margin of gap. And in many places, it's under 5%. Florida, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, are all under 5%, where you may have, for instance, a presidential election decided by 10,000 votes, but a poor, but poor and low-wage workers that didn't vote equal a million voters. Wow. In North Carolina, the last time, in 2016, it was 900,000 poor low-wage voters that could have voted, that didn't vote, but the margin of victory in president was only 160,000 votes. Now, why is it that people aren't voting? Well, if you look at our debates, the way they're set up in this country, we 40-plus percent of the people in this country are poor and low wealth. Over 135 million people today, 52 million people less than living wage, 87 million people uninsured or underinsured. When's the last time you have heard a presidential debate deal with those issues? Right. You don't hear it. So people don't hear themselves talk about it. We had 15 presidential debates in 2020. Not one 15 minutes, not one five minutes was spent on poverty and low wages. So if somebody turns on the TV, all they hear us talking about is who called who uh, a name, uh, who, how many wives somebody has, who's going to put tax cuts for the middle class tax cuts. You see what I'm saying? They right. never hear, we don't force these candidates to say, if you become president, what are you going to do with living wages? What are you going to do about health care for all? 
what are you going to do to address the issue of 47 percent of the nation being poor and low wealth so people turn off? What we're saying, though, to this crowd is if you want to be heard, you've got to make them make up. If you want to be talked to, you've got to make them hear you. And you've got this power. Poor and low wage voters now are the sleeping giant. Because so many people are poor and low wealth, we now have this power. Poor and low wealth people, religious and moral leaders, people without a faith who believe in the moral arc of the universe and allies can actually mobilize. And so on March the 2nd, in 32 states plus the District of Columbia, we are launching the mass moral march on state assemblies by poor and low wage people and their allies. Uh, we are launching a a, a, a effort to mobilize, to touch, and call to action 15 million poor and low-wage voters in those states over 42 weeks with the understanding that we need a resurrection and not an insurrection. We need to, 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 to poor and low-wage people must engage. We cannot sit back and say we don't have power. We must engage, and this power must be felt. Lastly, we really don't know in this country what a battleground state is or what a red state is or what a blue state is because so much has been done to depress the voting population from participation. If poor and low-wage voters engage, all of our concepts about what is red and blue and right state mm -hmm. and conservative they go out the window. Think about Mississippi, what it would do, right? Mississippi would no longer be a red state. It's amazing. It's, Bam. Ama Bam. it's amazing. I mean, and, perhaps. And you're talking about where now in Mississippi, 60% of Republicans want Medicaid expansion and health care. If you look, however, at the number of poor and low-wage voters in Mississippi that have not engaged if just somewhere around 25, 30% of those would engage, they could change the margin of victory for president and for the Senate and for the governorship. Imagine if a presidential candidate or senator went to Mississippi and says, if I get elected, my administration is going to raise your wages to a living wage. It's going to ensure everybody here has uh, you have health care. I mean, think about what that would do to change the whole that. What if that what if we had presidential debates and these issues were fully discussed? Well, it's not going to happen until these voters show their power in an election and force people to have to talk to them. Uh, Dr. Uh, Barbara, before I ask you the last question, I want to I want to postulate something here and you tell me if you, if you agree. I think the reason we don't go there is that both the Republican Party and let's call it, for lack of a better term, the neoliberal portion of the Democratic Party are pretty much there as the guardian gates of the rich. And in so doing, they even at the, the neoliberal Democratic side, there's just so far they're willing to go as far as uh, providing the type of economy that we really need. Well, I will say this. <clears throat> when Jesus preached his first sermon, his first sermon, 
and declared that he was come to preach good news to the poor, the Patokos, the P-T-C-H-O-S. And he preached it in the ghetto of Nazareth. It says that day they tried to kill him. The power structure tried right. to shut it down. Uh, when uh, uh, Pope Francis has said in his writings that, 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 that there's an evil magic, he calls it social magic, that exists in both trickle-down economics and neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them addressed the, the most fundamental issue of how we live from the bottom, poor and low-wage folk. If you look at it, Dr. King said from, in the letter from the Birmingham jail that moderates were the worst enemy of the civil rights movement. Yes, People he said that. Right. Yeah. In, in, yeah. From the, from jail, people mm-hmm. were more interested in keeping things in order than, than doing transformation. And the corporate wing, if you think about it, there was an article that came out when Manchin and Cinema voted against uh, mm-hmm. uh, the John Lewis voting bill, and the article said that they got that that the cha- U.S. Chamber of Commerce basically called them and said, "Okay, there are two things we don't want you voting for." Uh, voting rights and living wages, and if you, and the so-called religious uh, right, uh, well, what we call religious nationalism. Mm-hmm. There's a book out um, that talks about shadow money, and it says that basically they are undergirded by the by the uh, oil barons mm-hmm. of this country, mm-hmm. and that the whole religious nationalism piece is basically a function of certain aspects of corporate America. And so, yes, you, you're exactly right. Too many, too many are tied into what they treat corporations like people and people like things. Even the Supreme Court justices, if you look at their records, the ones that get put on, they got put on by McConnell and Trump and all, they, 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 they the, one, the one area that all of them almost 100% vote on uh, and have ruled on from the bench is the expansion of corporate power. Right. The expansion of corporate power. You think about the country where we're in a country that, 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 that gave corporations the right to put unlimited amounts of shadow money into the election, but then roll back voting rights. Right. But even with that, my friend, even with that, this is what we're saying to poor and low welfare. All of this is true. And all of this has happened. But even with that, we still have this power that has not been fully used and it's a sleeping giant that has to be way. If you disagree with all that I just said, then poor and low wage folk are going to have to vote. They're going to have to vote and they're not, not to, and their votes can't be for personalities. Their votes have to be demands. Right. We're voting and we're demanding. And that's why March we're gathering 42 weeks, uh, then we're coming to D.C. on June the 15th to launch the summer effort. We're doing all this before the conventions and say, if you want these votes, then you need to talk to these folks. You need to be very clear about where you stand on voting rights, living wages, and what you're going to do in the first 50 days. Not what you're going, what you have done, mm-hmm. but if you get power, what you're going to do in the first 50 days, because people are tired of being played with. And as Fannie Lou Hamer says, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you have to use all the power that you have. And in a democracy, 
poor and low wage folk and moral leaders and others have to recognize you cannot leave power on the table when you actually have the power to determine electoral outcomes. You just you know, can't do yeah. that. You know, Dr. Um, Barbara, I don't remember if it was the Net Roots Nation in Arizona or the Net Roots Nation in Providence, one of the Net Roots Nations. Uh, you came out and gave the speech on the third reconstruction. And I, I taped that speech that you gave. Hell of a speech. Are we considering this now the extension of the third reconstruction, what you're working on with the, uh, with the campaign to get these people to engage? Yes, the third reconstruction is the only, I believe the only hope for this democracy. You know, we had two reconstructions, one in the 1800s and one in the 1960s. Both of them were killed, assassinated, uh politically undermined. The first one in the 1800s, you know, uh was 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 uh, there was a compromise made uh to to to, to give the south back to the extremists. Uh, um, in 1877, the second Reconstruction in 1960 was undone by, you know, the assassination of so many and then the Southern strategy. So we never finished those. We need a third Reconstruction in this country that completes what a democracy should look like fully constructed. And that would mean a democracy where Poverty is abolished, where you do not have the ability to say poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. But that's where we are now. We need a third reconstruction that eradicates that. It should shock everybody to say poverty alone is the fourth leading cause of death in this country. Higher than homicide, higher than respiratory disease. A third reconstruction democracy says we, we we had reconstruction that said put in place a minimum wage, but now we need a living minimum wage for everybody, because seven twenty five an hour and two dollars and thirteen cent an hour for people that work in the restaurant industry is immoral, ungodly, and unjust. And if you go down the line, a third reconstruction means a a a society where everybody has access to basic human rights and basic civil rights. Health care ought to be a human and a civil right. Fully funded public education, a human and a civil right. Women's right to their health, a human right and civil right. Living wages, minimum living wages, human rights and civil rights. Uh, uh, the right to clean water, clean environment. This is what a third reconstruction vision looks like. And the, and the point is to tell people we have the power to build it. We have the power to build it. People sitting in office today are not insurmountable. They are not uh, 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 infallible. Uh, you know, yeah. without them, you, know, you, you can overcome that. They don't have to be there. We mm -hmm. can we can determine electoral outcomes, and it also means we have to have a movement that both moves in the electoral process and then stays engaged and stays engaged. I said the other day, and I'll close with this, to Senator Schumer, I was talking to him, and I said, Senator, uh, uh, we need uh, a hearing right now in the U.S. Senate 
on passing a living wage of at least 15 to $17 an hour minimum wage, which is actually 60 years old. Because, you know, at the March on Washington, they wanted mm-hmm. a minimum wage of $2 an hour index with inflation, which means it would be about 18 or $19 today if we had done right. three, 60, what, 60 some years ago. But anyway, and I said to him, and, and he said to me, well, I don't know if I have the vote. I said, if the Democratic Party doesn't have the votes in the Senate to pass a living wage, then they don't, they need them, then, then they need to be replaced, not by Republican, but they need to be replaced by by progressives. Yes, who, absolutely. Who, who will not say that kind of foolishness? I said, we need the hearing. We need a vote. Whether if the House, if, if Speaker Johnson won't pass it force them to have to deal with it and then go to the polls and say to people, if you elect us in the first 50 days, not the first 100 days, we'll do three basic things. We'll restore fully voting rights. We'll pass a living wage for all workers and we will guarantee health care. If those, if those three things, and do you know, lastly, the things that we're pushing there are about seven pieces of legislation that if they were pushed and passed that most Americans agree with in, the, yes. in, the, in terms of 67%, yes. it would pretty much eradicate poverty and low wage in this country. A third reconstruction says we must get it done and poor and low wage folk, moral leaders and other allies, we have power to do it. We are not Absol- uh, just people that history can act upon. We are people who can act in history. Absolutely. So, uh, Reverend, um, look, uh, when it comes to funding, because I, that is always an issue. How is your move, this movement uh, funded? I mean, there are a whole lot of rich people that claim that they really want equality and they really want uh, a fair society. But yet it seems like progressive values or those who are pushing the progressive values, most people say that they want, have the hardest time getting funded. What's your solution to that? Well, well, one of the things is, you know, we got, we're we building out. We have some good friends and some uh, people who, who, who give online and some people who bring resources to the table. I will tell you something. My, my history has been when we started Moral Monday. And 15 of us went in the legislature and, 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 dem- and demanded a change with an extremist legislature, extremist governor, and they arrested us. We didn't even have bail money. We just went in because it was the right thing to do. I always believe that if you go with vision, somehow provision will show up. But I you can't you. wait on provision to stand up for what's right. That you go to work. I come, I'm a farm boy. I grew up on the farm. And my grandmother taught me, if you have a field that needs to be chopped, chopping is when you go out and remove the weeds. She said, go out and start doing it. And if you do it, somebody will see you what you're trying to do and come join you. I come from the school of Mary McLeod Bethune. Mary McLeod Bethune and then, and then, uh, went, went down to Florida, Daytona, Florida. She said to her husband that the Lord had given her a vision to build a college, a training school for black students. She found a garbage dump and purchased it and started moving the garbage. And, and, and people said, are you crazy? She said, no, I'm not crazy. I said, you're never going to make that into a garbage dump, I mean, to a school. She says, I'm going to work. 
and somebody's going to join me. And what happened? Wow. People came alongside her. You know, I give you story after story. Frederick Douglass said the same thing after the Tanner decision of the Dred Scott decision. He said, this decision, as monstrous as it is, must intensify and embolden our agitation. So, so when we did the moral revival in 2016, we didn't know how we were going to get to the next city. But what we knew is that there needed to be a moral revival. Uh, right now, you know, I don't can't tell you every piece of resources we're going to need to come. But what I do know is we have to stand up, we have to rise up. And I, my, I'm a person of faith, and I believe that vision draws provision. Now, on the other side, on the government side, uh, we don't have to uh, raise any taxes to do what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. If folk pay their fair share. If we just took 10% of the current military budget, and by the way, our own military budget, if, if, if you cut it in half, would be more money than North Korea, Russia, Iran, combined. Iran, China combined, even if we cut it in half, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but if we took 10%, but on the flip side, you know, we don't have to do that. If you pass a living wage, then that's going to, that, there's a, there's a, um, there are metrics that show it'll increase the economy. Is healthcare, public, bam, there you go. That but you know, Rev, Reverend, you made my day when you said you go, you step out, you go do it, expecting that because what you're doing is, you know, I I, I gave up a whole lot for activist, progressive uh, journalism, uh, and I, I I tell you. Happier doing the right thing, but sometimes worried that uh, and, and and you made my day when you said that uh, you step out and do it, knowing that, you know, ultimately it's going to be there. The, the necessary resources will be there. Uh, my last question, doctor, is the one I ask everybody. What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you or what would you like to close with? Well, Pacifica, first of all, I want to thank you all. Because you all have been there, you carried the mass um, moral march and assembly on Washington D.C. last year. I hope in June fifteenth you all will carry it again. I hope that um, you will push out over and over again March the second, and and uh, on all of your uh, uh, online um, platforms we have a promo that's about five minutes. It's featuring poor and low wage workers. I, I would ask you to push that out. And I'm asking that you all will tell people, go to the website, www.poorpeoplescampaign.org, or go to www.breachrepairers and click on uh, March the 2nd, wherever you see March the 2nd, find your state and join us. We gather at 10 o'clock. The assembly starts at 11. This is not a march. It's a a launch, L-A-U-N-C-H. We're launching. And, and let me tell you how powerful we are in very simple terms. This is the last thing. Somebody said, well, how are you going to reach 15 million people? How are you going to touch 15 million people, 15 million poor and low-wage workers? I said, well, you do the math. If you have 30 states and you organize 200 people and you train those 200 people on how to reach people technologically using the old way of walking the turf, uh, uh, social media, then if those 200 people reach 50 people a day and you do that over 10 weeks and you have 230 states, that's 6,000 people. 
you will reach 1.5 million people a week. Wow. And yes. In 10 weeks, you reach 15 million. There which you go. means over 40 weeks, you can reach them four times. Wow. So the I, numbers, it's not, it's not, you know, some crazy number. It's just, uh, you got to get a remnant of people. Mm-hmm. We're looking for 6,000 people in this nation who will join us out of 300 some odd million people. We want 6,000 people, 200 per state that will, that will be willing to be trained in how to touch people in those states. Reverend, and we, we are going we are going to get there, and uh, I I I guarantee you, politics done right will do its part. Pacifica will do its part. KPFT will do its part. Thank you so kindly, Doctor Reverend Barber William Barber, American Protestant minister, president of the Repair of the Breach, and co-chair of the. Poor People's Campaign, and of course, the architect of Moral Mondays. Thank you so kindly for having been with Politics Done Right. Thank you so much. Blessings to you now. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.